0: and welcome to a podcast exploring the benefits of primary and secondary care, working closer together to benefit patients.
1: We've grown up thinking that we have discharged our responsibility to the patient when we put them on the waiting list.
0: I've really noticed that people are getting in touch with us, that they are perhaps as they're waiting noticing their condition is slightly worsening or that they need more pain relief.
2: I think the real opportunity we have within the system is to try and optimise people whilst they're waiting so that when their time comes they are fit to go and ready to go and we know that patients who are well prepared for surgery Actually, get better outcomes.
1: There are huge opportunities to improve clinical decisions to help patients by sharing information and sharing the decision making burden.
0: I'm Ursula Montgomery, and I'm here today with Professor Chris Moran and Professor Joe Dias. I'm a working GP and I'm Senior Clinical Advisor for Primary Care working at NHS England and Improvement. Chris, would you like to introduce yourself?
2: My name is Chris Moran, I'm a Professor of Orthopaedic Trauma Surgery in Nottingham, but I've been working as Strategic Incident Director for NHS England through the pandemic and also have been working hard with the elective recovery that we're trying
1: to attempt within NHS.
0: And Joe?
1: I'm Joe Dias, I'm an Orthopaedic and Hand Surgeon in Leicester and again Professor of Hand and Orthopaedic Surgery and head of the ATOMS team. So I've been a clinician working within the system for coming up to 35 years or so.
0: It's been interesting, hasn't it, that the pandemic has brought the three of us together in our different roles to start to think about people that are on waiting lists. And Chris, do you want to tell us a bit more about the work that you've been doing in that area and how it's brought you to the place that you're at right now?
2: Well, we do face a really difficult problem within the NHS. The Secretary of State has announced that that we may see waiting lists going up to perhaps 13 million. And now we're working incredibly hard to try and make sure that we don't get to that number. But I think it is inevitable that we are going to see large numbers on the waiting list for a number of years as we work through it. The NHS is working incredibly hard to work through it. But we are in a place now where people are waiting long periods of time. Now, when I was a young surgeon doing hip and knee replacements, my patients would often wait quite a long time for surgery. But actually, over the last 10 years, we've moved to a really good place within the NHS where people were waiting, usually a maximum of 18 weeks, for their surgery. And so it didn't require a lot of support within that short waiting time. But now we're facing patients waiting a year or more. They still have ongoing problems. And many of those problems, you know, for a patient with hip arthritis might be, you know, really severely severe pain, waking up at night and limited mobility. So they're going to their GPs for additional support for this at a time when we know primary care is under enormous pressure, uh, not just dealing with the patients today, but preventing patients in the future with the the vaccination programme. And so it's become clear to us at NHS England and myself, as as I'm still a working clinician, that we need to do a lot more to try and support patients while they're waiting. There are many good things that we can do. And I know Joe and his team in Leicester have done a lot of work on this and come up with a lot of great ideas of how we can support patients, work closely with primary care, but also very importantly, not increase load for primary care physicians who are working so hard at the moment.
0: Thanks Chris for those reflections and certainly as a working GP I've really noticed that people are getting in touch with us, that they are perhaps as they're waiting, noticing their condition is slightly worsening or that they need more pain relief. We're noticing some mental health impact and also just some simple answers to questions. When will I be seen? What's going to happen next? And we've also been reflecting and thinking about people living with long term conditions such as high blood pressure or diabetes and making sure that their conditions are managed really well so that when they come and are ready for surgery, they can actually go ahead at the right time but I want to go over to Joe now because as you mentioned you've also been grappling with this Joe and you came up with a really uh, neat way of approaching it. Do you want to tell us about what what you've been doing in Leicester?
1: The problem that we were having was the previous system that all of us have been uh, with is where we worked like a relay team you know that the primary care would look after the condition until it got to a point that you asked for secondary care's help. Then the baton, which is the patient, got transferred to the secondary care. And then we put them on the list. And then usually, because as Chris has said, the waiting time had come down, we then forgot about them until they came to have their operation. So the patients were sort of left to fend for themselves between the two relay runners. And then we picked up the baton again And when we finished with them, we then passed the baton back on to primary care. So what has happened in the pandemic is that we've all dropped the baton. So the patient, while this pandemic was evolving from its first to second to third wave, the patients were left to actually fend for themselves. As Chris has mentioned, we've grown up thinking that we have discharged our responsibility to the patient when we put them on the waiting list hoping that they would come and we'd pick it up and deliver care. But when the waiting list got lengthened, then suddenly a new problem evolved, which is there were groups of patients that were prioritized because of their need, cancers and uh, life-threatening disorders. But there were lots of patients in trouble that were not prioritized and were left in the middle, in a limbo where they were not being looked after. So what we did in Leicester was right after the first wave, we arranged a questionnaire for patients who were waiting on waiting lists and to try and understand how we could support them. We got responses in just under 900 patients waiting on the waiting list. And we sampled them both by what their problem was, lower limb, upper limb, et cetera, but also how long they'd been waiting on the waiting list. And the summary really was that the NHS was actually trying its best at that time. So they felt that what we were doing to protect them was good, but they felt that there were areas that they were left in limbo. And that wound up us developing a pathway, which is there were three main things that patients wanted. The first is that somebody listened to their concerns and they were phoning in to secondary care who was saying to them, contact your GP. And the GPs were saying, but contact the hospital. So they were left with nobody actually listening and addressing their concerns. The second thing was they were left being unable to cope. There were people, as Chris has said, with hip and knee replacements were struggling to manage, especially when they were isolating as well in the different phases of the pandemic. And usually we would be supporting groups of patients with arthritis, with chronic arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis. So we do have answers to help patients, but we were not deploying them in time. So patients were left in the middle, not knowing what to do to help them cope. The big problem that they had was that there was no information. This is like patients going to catch a flight, being at the airport, being told that there's a delay in their flight, and nobody giving them any information about what's happening. So the catch up was not smart and information and communications wasn't great. So what the team here in Leicester did was working with primary care and the community. We came up with this step model, mainly aimed around helping patients, but in a stretched scenario, both for primary care and for secondary care. So We developed resources with a web link uh, that the patient could access themselves, that is level one. Level two is group working, which is something that primary care has done such good work in around webinars, to have many patients sharing their concerns and helping a group of patients to find solutions. The third is personalized care, which is where we give aids, etc., to help patients cope while they're waiting. And the fourth is clinical contact, to be able to either increase their priority or to reassure ourselves where patients were saying, you know, there's a pandemic. So I'm not going to have the surgery to make sure that that decision was medically sound to not have care. So that is the full level thing.
0: Thanks, Joe. So I really liked those three C's that you described. So you wanted to help address patients' concerns to help them cope. And to help them with communication. And you sort of use the analogy of an airline that I could imagine, you know, we've seen it on sort of media before, haven't we, where? People have been left waiting at Heathrow, for example, and getting very, very angry and annoyed. But in some ways, our patients getting upset and annoyed or frustrated are hidden to us, aren't they? Unless they get in touch and often we won't hear from them. I just wanted to ask Chris, based on some of the work that Joe's been doing, how are you sort of thinking about that from a national perspective?
2: What we're planning to do is to provide some guidelines to trusts and regions on how to help patients and support patients actively while they're waiting. I think it has to be a locally delivered solution and all hospitals have slightly different systems. So you you can't dictate exactly how each system should work. But I think there are some general principles that we really need to ask the system to work to. Joe has already mentioned the analogy of knowing how long you're going to wait well, there's no doubt that we need to keep patients better informed of potential waiting times. We need to make sure they realise they're not being forgotten. So some form of regular contact, even if it's just a text to make sure that they appreciate that we've not forgotten them, we still remember they're there. Then finally, a clear contact point within secondary care for where they can get advice if they feel they're deteriorating. We need to design a system. I think we need to recognise that secondary care needs to support primary care in this. At the moment, primary care is, as you've mentioned, with your increased consultation rates, you know, GPs are bearing the brunt of this, uh, and we do need to support them and recognise that they're very busy, so we need to reduce the number of touch points into primary care for these patients. But we also need to make sure, and Joe has mentioned this, it's so important that we can identify patients who are deteriorating so that we can reprioritise them and, and try and bring them in at the most appropriate time. And then I think the real opportunity we have within the system, and this will be different in different areas and different specialties, but is to try and optimise people whilst they're waiting so that when their time comes, they are fit to go and ready to go. And we know that patients who are well prepared for surgery from both the physical and the mental health perspective actually get better outcomes. So I think that we need to try and work harder to help people in terms of physical fitness, mental preparation. Uh, you know, some areas are now doing surgery school, which sort of is a, a webinar that introduces patients, so that when they turn up at hospital they're not going into the unknown. And one of the huge benefits we've seen from the pandemic is the ability to have Zoom meetings with hundreds of people at once and and introduce them and show them around the hospital and what's gonna happen to them. So I think these are huge opportunities. And then the final thing is, again, depending on the specialties, There are different services that patients can be directed to, you know, so for rheumatology and for orthopaedic patients, then orthotics and uh, occupational therapy, you know, allowing the patients more rapid access to try and help them while they're waiting to give them the aids they need at home, not after the surgery, but before the surgery. So I think there's a lot to do. I think it is going to vitally depend on local delivery. You cannot dictate how systems can react to this because they are all so different but I think some broad guidelines and principles and some aims I think is where we're heading.
0: You mentioned that really interesting use of technology so you talked about using zoom meetings to maybe give people a, a trip around the hospital and kind of understand and familiarize themselves take away some of that fear and anxiety. And then coming back to you, Joe, you mentioned in one of your approaches, I think it was your step two, about doing some group work. And you talked about working with primary care, and maybe some group webinars. Do you want to tell us a bit more about your plans there?
1: This is one of the things that we actually picked up from primary care. And Lupa Joshi did some pioneering work on this. And she's been very helpful for us in Leicester to develop this model where we try and invite patients who with a particular condition but have a group of clinicians with multiple disciplines. For instance, in orthopedics, it would be the consultant, the therapist, the nurse practitioners, the radiologists, you know, the occupational therapists and GPs all working as the panel to answer patients' queries with patients on that panel to share and chair and moderate the whole thing. This is really to share people's experiences of this and help them share their solutions to problems. And I think this reflects the pathway of the NHS, which is to try and integrate systems. So rather than, I, I'd said earlier, that previously we worked like a relay team where we did our bit and passed on the responsibility. And here what we want to do is create a team working together. So it's not a primary care responsibility. It is not a secondary care responsibility. So it becomes like a tug of war where the whole team is pulling together. And it is not just us as clinicians or the NHS doing it. The patients are an integral part of this team because we need to know whether what we are doing, whether what Chris is organizing is helping you. So we need you to be participants in all this. So it is not just the NHS and patients. It is us all together pulling out of this
0: completely agree. A lot of my work is around the development of primary care networks where we're seeing it's more than general practice. It's general practice teams working together. We're working with colleagues from other disciplines. So, for example, social prescribing, link workers, health coaches, and with our local authority and community partners and voluntary sector. And so what you're describing there also really links really well to the proposals around integrated care systems that are currently being discussed in the white paper. And as we work together, we're starting to break down maybe some of those traditional barriers across different parts of the NHS family, but also with our wider partners and with patients to really work together. I really liked the way that that you've described that. Are you planning to evaluate the work that you're doing?
1: That is an absolutely important thing because there's no point putting in so much effort. At the end of the day, patients on a waiting list actually want their procedure. That is the way out. You get onto your flight and you get to your destination. Whatever systems we put in place should be useful. And the only way we can demonstrate whether they are delivering help to patients is by evaluating our actions. So it needs to be built in. Both the feedback systems and the evaluation systems need to be built in because we are on a learning curve, a journey of our own, of uh, working differently after the pandemic. So we need to know whether the new ways that we're doing are helpful.
0: I'm 25 years in the health service this August. And I think what I've really reflect on is that we're always learning. We never stop learning and actually developing and improving the way that we try and work together as a team. So I think you've really captured that really well. Chris just to come back to you I mean you mentioned a very big number there earlier on you said something around 13 million people waiting that is an enormous challenge that, that you're heading up there do you want to tell us about some of the ways that you're thinking about this challenge and where you think some of the opportunities lie but also maybe some of the risks.
2: We're hoping 13 million is, is the potential we have to reach and we're really hoping and working very hard to avoid that. I, I'm certain we won't reach that point point. and anybody who's working in the NHS uh, at the moment will recognise that everybody throughout the whole system is working incredibly hard at the elective recovery. I think there's a number of things that we can do. We must make sure that the patients are on the waiting list for the right reason and the other thing that we need to do is try and make our pathways as efficient as possible so there's a lot of work going into this at the moment one potential which is very much being explored is to increase the number of surgical hubs based around specialties so centers that specialize in orthopedic surgery mainly focusing on hip and knee and shoulder replacements so that you can have very good throughput in those region areas Its downside is it will require patients to travel a little bit further, but what we're hearing from patients is that they recognise that their local hospitals are under massive pressure, and creation of these surgical hubs means that we can have hospitals where we can keep COVID out, make sure that they're green sites, COVID-3, and then run efficiently without the problems that having a patient to manage patients with COVID bring. We also need to be innovative about how different staff members are working. Underutilised staff members and groups within a lot of other specialties, sort of, uh, there's surgical nurse practitioners and optometrists, for instance, within ophthalmology, who could provide a huge amount of additional service. So, I think we really need to look at expanding the roles of other groups within this, recognising where we are and. The other thing I think is that we just need to be really clear and honest with patients going forward to make sure we've mentioned this issue of patients being in limbo and not knowing where they stand. And I think it is always easier if you know your plane is delayed for 24 hours, at least you can get on and work out what you're going to do for the next 24 hours before your flight goes. And I think that is a really good analogy when people know that actually the operation isn't going to be in six weeks' time. It really isn't. You can learn coping strategies and how you adjust your life around that. So I think the reality is that we do face an enormous uphill task. I think the NHS, it's up to it. The surgeons, nurses, physios, everybody involved in the really complex pathway are going to work hard. And we very much need to support our workforce. And Joe will echo this more than anything else. People always think of... Surgery is about the surgeon, but actually I'm just a part-time leader of a really big team, and sometimes it's the anaesthetist leading it, and sometimes it's the scrub nurse leading it. But actually, without those people, I can't do my job. And so it really is a question of supporting all staff through the system
0: what's really struck me as you were talking is that patients really have to be at the heart of this and that's your passion and certainly that's what I've heard from Joe as well and as a GP that's my passion that patients are really in the centre of this we're doing it and demonstrating that we care about them while they're waiting you've also talked about the importance of caring for our workforce but also innovating and actually providing opportunities for different people to step up and perhaps a more distributive leadership style that could be adopted. And then we've talked about honest communication and that sort of back to Joe's point about those three C's, isn't it? It's about making sure the communication is really clear and open, that we address concerns and we help people how to cope. So just as we start to come to a close, I was just thinking, Joe, how would you encourage local systems, local practices, local PCNs, local trusts? What sort of encouragement would you give them to go on the journey that you've gone on?
1: Usually life is boring if we don't have challenges. And this has been the biggest challenge of each of us and we will ever have in our lives, but also comes with time to reflect what we did before, what we took for granted before, to understand and learn the lessons of the pandemic. And there have been huge lessons that we've learned. The things that we accepted before, and we're just wondering why we didn't do lots of the stuff that we did in the pandemic before the pandemic. So there are huge opportunities to improve and especially huge opportunities to improve clinical decisions to help patients by sharing information and sharing the decision-making burden. So the primary care GP is not isolated in his decision-making, is supported in his decision-making. And the step-down care from secondary care is not just the responsibility of secondary care, but is shared with the community and shared with primary care. But in a way that the patient is truly the center not just nominally the center, but truly the center. And I think that is going to be the biggest opportunity of the pandemic. And if I were to look back in 2030 on this pandemic, what would I like to see? I would like to see that we've delivered the opportunities that the pandemic has opened our eyes to, and that our patients in 2030 look back on the pandemic and say, you know what, my experience has improved immeasurably after that.
0: Jo, thank you so much. I'm going to give you the last word because I think that is absolutely right. In 2030, if we look back, can we be proud of ourselves and would patients say that we really did the best that we could for them? Thank you so much Chris and Jo for our chance to chat today. Thank you for the work that you're both doing and contributing and I look forward to more of these conversations. You've been listening to a podcast produced by Robert Mulligan for NHS
2: England and NHS Improvement.